I think there are two types of people here this morning. Uh, fall probably into two basic categories, though you probably would not want to admit it. Two types of people this morning. Those who tend to be a hoarder and those who tend to be a minimalist. How many, let's just admit it right now, how many of you just really can't throw anything away? Man, you know, might need that one day. Boy, somebody gave me that. You got a whole big storage shed full of stuff, right? Okay, yeah, it's fine. Hey, be proud of that, right? Okay. How many of you are the exact opposite and you say, man, I'm throwing everything away. Just get rid of stuff. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Now, some of you just raised your hand on the first one and your spouse raised the hand on the second one. Y'all got some major problems at home. Whew. So you got one person, okay, who's going around throwing everything away because the other person won't, and the other person kind of knows it, and they're dumpster diving. They're going, and they're finding all this stuff, right? Oh, man, that's what happens. You know, you see those TV shows, and, and, and we, you know, we, we man, I, you know, I don't want to be a hoarder like that, you know, and I can't live like a minimalist like that. I saw one guy one time, he had 21 things in his possession. It was it. I don't know why 21, but that's all he wanted to live. I'm like, dude, what, you know, what do you do with your shirt when it gets stinky? You know, like you have no laundry detergent because it doesn't fit in the bag. But, but anyway, you know, I, I think in some cases for those who, who find themselves being hoarders, we're not, we're not talking about the people that you see on TV, but honest because I kind of tend that way. If we're honest, we, we, we think, well, you know, what I have might not be enough. I got to hang on to stuff. Maybe it's not enough. Sometimes we find ourselves not feeling secure in what we have, or maybe, maybe those of us that desire something else, maybe we're not satisfied with our current status. We want something new, something more. Because as I said, not all the hoarders are the types you see on TV where you can't even walk into their house. Some of us just hide it a little better. I think really the silliness of this kind of points to a greater spiritual reality. Because ultimately, whether you are a hoarder in life or a minimalist in life, that's not the most important question. I think ultimately this points to a greater spiritual reality that there, there are here two types of people spiritually. There are those for whom God is enough, and there are those for whom God is not enough. Every situation, every stage of life, everything that we encounter, I really believe, presents us with a fundamental question. Is God enough? Everything that you encounter, I really believe it. If you go back and you trace this past week and the decisions you made, the emotions that you felt, the anxiety that you experienced, the stress that you had, whatever it may be, I think everything comes back to this particular question, this fundamental question, is God enough? If he is, then I will be at peace, full of contentment and displaying constantly the fruit of his Holy Spirit, if God is enough. If God is not enough in my life, then I will chase the things that this world has to offer, hoping that something or someone will eventually give to me or make me feel as if I have enough of whatever it is that I'm trying to get in life. Is God enough? We've been in a series uh, all year and we'll be in it all year long called Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. We're just taking an overview of the Bible. If you're just joining us, this is kind of the way this thing goes. We look at a different Bible story every week and we're moving, in essence, chronologically through the Scripture. And maybe some of you were raised in Sunday school and you grew up knowing some different Bible stories. Or maybe you weren't even raised in church, but you've heard some. What we're trying to figure out is what really do they mean? We thought we knew what they meant, but really... 
what do they mean? And how ultimately do they reveal our hearts and do they point toward Jesus Christ and his full uh, revelation and understanding of these things. Now today, what we're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is the Israelites, the story of the Israelites, insisting that they be given a king. What they're ultimately saying, as we'll see in this, is that God is not enough for us. We want something more. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's over in the Old Testament. There are some Bibles, by the way, that are scattered throughout the, the pews there. You can see those on the back of the pew or chair in front of you. If you did not bring a Bible and you want to follow along with us this morning, just grab one of those and, and you can open it. Certainly go to your smartphone or your tablet or whatever you want to. But, but uh, if, if you'd like to hold a copy of God's Word this morning, then please grab that. If you need a Bible, those have been donated specifically for both use in here and to give to those who might need a Bible. So please just take it with you. If you need one, that is yours to keep. If you don't like the color that's in front of you, you can look around a little bit and we got some different colors, okay? So at the end, you just, you know, you can go switch it out, whatever you need to do, all right? So, so let me kind of catch you up. The history before 1 Samuel chapter 8, God had dealt with the Israelites through a spokesman, through, through someone who was sort of the representative for the nation, but God alone was their king. They had a king and it was God. Their form of government was kind of a loose association of families and tribes that was based on a strong mutual relationship with God that bound them together as God's people. And throughout their history, the history of the nation of Israel, God had taken care of them and they had kind of enjoyed a status and a security that was unlike any of the other nations. They were God's people protected by him. And it was only when they desired something or or someone beyond or other than God, that they began to experience problems from the inside and the outside that threatened their existence. Their history, I think, up to this point really shows two things. It shows, first of all, that God was enough. You see that in the Exodus. God took care of them. He led them out of slavery. He got them to the Red Sea. They freak out because there's the the sea and Pharaoh's army behind them. He parts the Red Sea. They walk on through. Then they freak out because they don't have anything to eat. God sends manna. Then they walk around in the wilderness. God sustains them. Then they go to the promised land and God opens the, the doors and literally brings down the walls as we saw a couple weeks ago in the city of Jericho as he opens up the promised land for them. And then throughout the book of Judges, even though they were sinful people, God sustained them. God had always been enough for them. But their history also shows they didn't believe God was enough for them. They really didn't think God was enough. Because you know what they're always doing? Complaining. Always complaining. They grumble. Grumble, grumble, grumble. All the time. That's what they do. That's what the Israelites were good at. They abandon the Lord all the time. They go and serve other gods. And they compare themselves all the time to other nations. God was enough, but they didn't think so. And they certainly didn't live as if he was enough. God had provided them with some unique things that, that, that set them apart, really. He had given them his word. Literally, the words of the Lord, the commands, the law of God. He had given them his rule. He was to be their king, and he had given them protection. He fought their battles for them. And this gave them a particular status and security, but it didn't seem to be enough for them. Because they didn't obey his word. And they didn't trust his rule, and they certainly didn't rest in his protection. God wasn't enough. And that's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Look at verse 1. When Samuel, Samuel was a a judge, uh, a ruler of the people, if you will, a representative of God. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second son was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. 
However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So he's old and his sons are useless. That's basically where you have it. Then in verse 4, so, knowing all of this, all the elders of Israel gathered, gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. The elders are the, the representatives of the tribes and the families. And they go to Samuel and they're going to present a case to say, we got a problem. You've been a great leader for us, but your sons are worthless. What are we going to do? Look at verse 5. They said to him, look, how about this? You are old. Isn't that great? Look, you are old, as if he didn't know. And your sons do not follow your example. It's, it's what is it, National Laughter Day, Danny? They haven't caught on yet. <laughs> You're tracking with me. I appreciate it. <clears throat> Look, you are old. That's kind of funny. Anyway, and your sons do not follow your example. Therefore, here's the total curveball. Appoint a king to judge us the same way as all the other nations have. Appoint a king for us like all the other nations. Samuel is obviously floored. Look at verse 6. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand what? sinful. Not just out of left field, but sinful. So he prayed to the Lord. Now let me, let me just take a little bit of a side note here just for a second. Samuel is upset and he's offended. He has judged them. He has led them. He has provided God's leadership for them for several years now. And they come to him and basically he takes it as if what you have done for us is not good enough. We want something different. He is offended. And what is his first response when he is offended? What does it say? He considered their demand sinful, so he what? Prayed. Now, just as a side note, not really the focus of the sermon. When you find yourself offended by someone, your first response should not be to go and rant anonymously about them on Facebook or social media somewhere. And then sort of make sure that everybody asks you a little bit about it. Hey, you okay? What's going on? What, what happened? You know, what? You're so great. Nobody should ever do that to you. Whatever. And you just, you know, that's not the first response. Not that any of you have ever done that, right? Nobody's ever done that in this room. But for those people out there that do that, you can let them know the first response when you're offended is not to rant and to try to make your case. The first response that Samuel has is to what? To pray. God, I'm upset. I don't know what to do. Go to the Lord in prayer. Anyway, that's what he does. Then look at verse 7. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. Here it is, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but you must solemnly warn them and tell them about the rights of the king who will rule over them. This isn't about you, Samuel. They're rejecting me, God says. So listen to them, but warn them very strongly about what the king will do, about what an earthly king will do to them and take from them. Look at verse 10. Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will rule over you. He can take your sons and put them into use in his chariots on horses and running in front of his chariots. So he can, he can draft them in the army. He can appoint them for use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground, reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war or the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 
He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. The king isn't going to be really what you want, he tells them. He'll put your sons in the army. He'll put your daughters to work. He'll tax you relentlessly. He'll take your servants as his own. He'll even press you into service if all that isn't enough. And you won't like it in the long run. And look at verse 19. You would think they would say, oh man, shoot, we hadn't thought about that. Dog, you're right. What were we thinking? The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battle. So they don't listen. We must have a king. We must. What we have isn't enough. We need something more. We need someone else, they say. We must have a king no matter the consequences. Then we'll be something like all the other nations. We will finally be established with the status and security that we need. We'll finally appear to be powerful in the eyes of our enemies. Verse 21, Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you go back to your city because here's about to happen. What was the problem in wanting a king? Was it the fact that they just wanted a king? Was that the inherent problem? Was there just something wrong with that? If you know the story of Abraham, God had promised way back in Genesis that one day there would be kings that came from the family line of Abraham. So it doesn't seem as if from the very beginning, God has a problem inherently with a king over Israel. The book of Judges talks about what happened when there was no king in Israel. And if you know the end verse of that particular book, it says in those days there was no king in Israel and people did whatever in the world they wanted to do. I mean, maybe these guys are just preparing for the future. We need somebody to lead us. Even the book of Psalms paints the monarchy in a positive light as they reflect on it. And ultimately, the king in the Old Testament is a preview of what Jesus is to be in the role The role he's to play in the lives of believers. So was it wrong for them to ask for a king? Was having a king a bad thing? That's a trick question, by the way. The answer is yes and no. The problem, as we'll see, wasn't in their desire just to have a king, but in the nature and the motive of that desire. It was okay for them to wonder what might happen next, and Samuel's sons weren't worthy of his role. But God was to be enough for them, and clearly he wasn't. If you look back at what they say, give us a king like what? All the other nations. And God says, this is where we see their motive is the problem, they have rejected me as king. So it goes back to the question, is God enough? I think Samuel presents really two specific categories that we've, we've got to be honest with today and, and that the Israelites basically ignored. Two categories to, to question ourselves on, is God enough in these particular areas? The first of, of which is, is God enough for your status? For your status. The key phrase I think in this is, give us a king like all the other nations. To them, their status wasn't good enough. Their status as God's people, under His rule, under His word, under His protection, that wasn't enough for them. The other nations appeared to have some things that they wanted. 
prestige, strong reputation, prominence in the world, success on the battlefield. And they seem to have none of that. And so the Israelites in these moments, they see themselves as lacking, as kind of less than, as unknown, as needing a different status. The main reason was because they began to compare themselves to other nations. Focusing on the here and now, not considering the spiritual side of things. They're discontented in their current and historical status. They forgot what the scripture said in Deuteronomy chapter 4. You can write down this reference if you want to. I'm going to turn to it and and read it to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, here's what Moses says about the nation of Israel. He says, this is... This is uh, Moses writing and he says, Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. He's telling him, here's what's going to happen when you get to the promised land. Carefully follow them, for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, all the other nations will say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call Him. And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law I set before you today? The Israelites say, we want a king. We want somebody to give us status. Moses had told them, you've already got status that is beyond anything that the rest of the world has. They wanted something beyond being the people of God. Now before we're just too critical on them, I think we need to turn the mirror on ourselves and say, what about us? Is God enough for your status? Think about right now where you are in life. Wherever you may be, where are you in life? What you have, what you do, uh, your reputation, sort of what you appear to be, what people think of you, what you think of yourself, where you live, what, where you stand in comparison to others. How discontented are you right now with your current status? Scale of 1 to 10, 10 being really, really discontented and 1 being blissfully unaware of where you are right now. Where are you? Is God enough? Or do you require a particular status to be content? Is God enough regardless of your circumstances, whatever they may be? Or are you playing a comparison game that's so easy to play? Looking around at everyone else and what they appear to be and then complaining for what God has not done for you. Truth is, we're obsessed with comparison these days, aren't we? I think that's at the heart of social media and advertising. We want to be liked. And the way to do that is to seek a particular appearance and status that's largely based on conformity to social expectations and trends, which doesn't make any sense. We want to be unique, so let's follow the crowd. Makes no sense. Young people, listen to me. If you, let me be completely honest with you, and I'm not being cynical in any way. Let me shoot you 100% straight. If you want to be radical and unique in this world, follow Jesus Christ, because there ain't many people doing it. There There ain't many people following the Lord Jesus Christ in today's world. If you want to be just another sheep led off to the slaughter, if you will, then you do what everybody else is doing. You want to be unique in this world and radical and rebellious even in this world, then you follow Jesus Christ, because not many people your age are going to do it. 
That is the way to be truly your own person, is to follow the Lord. Regardless, we are obsessed with comparison. There's always somebody who's better than us, and so we sulk, and we complain, and we get critical, or we get jealous, or outraged, or whatever, and we forget that the secret to contentment has nothing to do with our status, but has everything to do with our Savior. Do you know what Philippians chapter 4 says? We want to go back and study this. Write this down as well. Philippians 4. 11 to 13. Now it finishes with Philippians 4.13, which is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that has nothing to do with sports, as I've told you a million times. Paul has just got done talking about how his situation has constantly changed. And he says, sometimes I've had a lot. And sometimes I haven't had much at all. Sometimes my circumstances have been great. And sometimes they've been terrible. And in fact, he's writing all this from prison. And he says, I've learned the secret to being content in any and all circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He focuses on his Savior and his status as a child of God, as a, as a co-heir with Jesus. And he says, that's the secret to being content. It's not about what I have or don't have. It's not dependent on my circumstances, but on my Savior. Is God enough for your status For who you are in life. The Israelites said no. We want a king to elevate us. What do we say today? The second category I think that this opens up for us as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. Is God enough for your security? Your status and your security. They say give us a king like all the other nations to go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted someone like the other nations had, sort of a a visible military leader that would intimidate enemies and impress their allies. They wanted someone to lead them, to have protection from their threats and an increase in their holdings. There were enemies all around them. They're kind of loosely tied together. They feel threatened. The most recent history for the nation of Israel was in the book of Judges. There was a pattern in the book of Judges. Israel would sin. God would punish them by sending another nation to oppress them and defeat them. The people would cry out to God, oh, please save us. And so God would raise up a deliverer who would crush the oppressor. And the people would then have rest. And guess what? It just started all over again. Over and over in the book of Judges, they sin. They're punished. They cry out to God. He delivers them. They have rest. They sin and so on and so forth. What they didn't see here in the book of Samuel was their sin. All they saw was the threat from their enemies. They didn't see that it was their own sin that exposed them to the threat. All they saw were their enemies. And they thought, if we just have a king, a war leader... And we'll defeat our enemies once and for all. They didn't realize that the enemy was inside them. That they were their own worst enemy. They wanted a standing army, a great military leader. What God had provided for their security was his very presence and fighting on their behalf. They wanted a more visible source and sense of protection. And it's often the case that we are the same. Forgetting where our security comes from and the kind of security that we need most. I want to read to you a few New Testament verses real quick that point to the kind of security that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, if you want to write it again, write it down, go back and study it and encourage you to, to read the scripture for yourself. Romans chapter 8 
Paul says these words, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our security in the Lord is not threatened by anything from the outside. And then in Philippians chapter 4. Paul talks about the kind of security that we can have and can experience. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, don't worry about anything. What do we worry about? I don't know if I'm going to be taken care of. I don't know if things are going to work out. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure if I have security. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then it says, the peace of God, which surpasses every thought or all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You want your anxiety level to go down? You may need some medical means for that, but let me tell you, you also need spiritual means for that. Absolutely. Get on your knees and pray and say, Lord, I am done trying to gain more on my own. I'm giving this to you. Lord, take it from me so that the peace of God can overwhelm me. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see more of the security and victory that we have in Jesus Christ. In verse 54, the second part of 54. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? And O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have security and we have victory. And we read all that stuff, and yet, if we're honest, we still go through life terrified that we won't be taken care of, that we don't have the security that we need. God has given us status and security incomparable to what we could conjure up or gain on our own. But we often want what we don't need. We often demand from God what we don't need. We are not in need of higher status or security. We have the highest possible status and security as God's children. But here we are. Believing that we need greater status, more security, wearing ourselves out to get more of whatever it is that we think will bring those things. Whether that's education or money or expertise or influence or a relationship or stuff or appearance or a promotion or a new job or whatever. And I think all along we don't realize what is at stake. The Israelites were warned that day by Samuel, here's what's at stake. God said, you warn them what the king will do if they give them to, if they give themselves over to someone besides the Lord God. Here's what is at stake, and they didn't pay any attention to it. The first thing that's at stake is your family. Samuel first talks about what the king could do with the sons and daughters of the nation of Israel. We don't have to rehash it all to understand that when we begin to chase things and people other than God, when God is not enough, then we easily sacrifice our families because we give so much away, don't we, all of our time. We give away our influence in the lives of our families, our intimacy with them. We sacrifice our values. We break promises. We miss the small things. We raise materialistic kids. We have a house filled with unused stuff that nobody knows what to do with. And we certainly have increased stress. Putting our family at risk for what we're pursuing that God has already given us, status and security. Secondly, what's at risk is your finances. 
Samuel said, the king will tax you. He will take whatever he wants. The more that we pursue status and security apart from God, the more we put our finances at risk. Not at risk of losing everything, but at risk of missing the point of it all. In fact, in our pursuit just to get more and more and more, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that's like chasing the wind. You can hold it in your hand and then it's gone. There's really nothing to behold. Jesus would say that we can't serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and our pursuit of money. The Bible also tells us that the love of money is the root of what? All sorts of evil. Not all sorts of great things to put in your house. All sorts of evil. Because our pursuit of greater status and greater security threatens our finances because it keeps us from a few things. It keeps us from giving biblically toward the Lord's work. You know, we'd never have a bill we couldn't pay here at church if we would simply give biblically. I mean, if we would tithe and just give biblically, we'd probably have about a $3 million budget. We'd have no trouble whatsoever. As it stands, just just a matter of information, we got about a $300,000 budget. We're about 10%. I don't mean that as a shame. I just mean, man, God could do some incredible stuff through our church, Elm Grove Baptist Church. If we said, you know what, Lord, I'm not putting my security in that anymore. I'm going to give generously, give biblically. I think it blinds us also when we pursue these, these status, this status and security. It blinds us to God's real provision in our lives. This is why it steals our finances, because we think we're responsible for all we have. You realize that everything we have, and again, I'm just preaching to myself this morning, everything we have is a gift from God. Everything. God could take it away just like that. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Not only does it blind us to God's provision, but man, when we start pursuing status and security, our finances are at stake because they begin to control us. We're controlled by the almighty dollar and it keeps us from experiencing blessings that money can't buy. It makes us slaves to it. So our family's at stake, our finances are at stake, but also ultimately your freedom is at stake. Samuel told the people, the king ultimately won't get enough through your family and your finances. He'll take all that stuff, but ultimately he's going to take you too. He'll press you into service. The truth is, and you know this, it's not a secret, you and I will be enslaved by whatever we want most. We're enslaved by it. Samuel warned that the king would easily become a tyrant and lay claim to everything, including their very own personal freedom. He won't care about you, Samuel implies. He'll just care about what you can do for him. And Paul would later warn us not to be enslaved by anyone but Jesus Christ. We're not meant to serve anything or anyone but the Lord himself. Because whatever has our desire, our greatest desire, also has our loyalty and our obedience. We're enslaved by whatever or whomever we want most. We come back to the question, is God enough? We fast forward to the New Testament, we ultimately see the question is, is Jesus enough? Are we willing to live in the status and security that he provides, or will we demand more, which is actually less? We settle. Is God's word, his rule, his protection through Jesus Christ enough for me? Is Jesus enough? If he's not enough, you'll give away your family, your finances, and your freedom trying to get whatever you think 
will be enough, which is what we don't even need. What is it today that I desire more than Jesus? Is it success? Security? My encouragement to you today, my encouragement to myself today, and as I've prepared the message this week, is to lay down whatever keeps me from saying that Jesus is enough. Is it a particular pursuit? Is it a thing? Is it a mindset? Is it a sin in my life? Whatever it may be, lay it down today and simply say to the Lord Jesus, you are enough for me, for my status, my security, my salvation, my everything. I'm going to encourage you to do something very specific this week. Very specific. And it will be something physical. And this is going to be real hard for some people and real easy for others, okay? You remember how I asked you at the very beginning, who of you are kind of the hoarders, and I man, I can't throw anything away, and then others, who I can throw anything away, doesn't make any difference? Okay. I'm going to ask you this week to throw something away. Something. It's going to be tough. All right? Something. And here's what you're going to do. Now, some of you say, well, shoot, all right, good. There's my excuse. Did you hear what the preacher said? we got to throw something. I didn't say everything. Something, okay? Here, here's, what I would, here's what I would love for you to do this week. When you say, you know what? I'm gonna, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's already trash. I don't know. But I'm going to throw something away. And here's what I'm going to do when I do it. I am going to say, not just through this physical act, but in my spirit, this will be an act of worship for me through which I will say, Lord Jesus, you are enough. And I don't even know what it is you'll throw it. You don't have to throw it. It's up to you and God. You say, well, i got something in mind. It's already sitting out there. It's fine, whatever. But, but throw something away. And when you do, just simply again, be reminded when you take out the trash, when you throw stuff away, when you get rid of things that you don't truly need in your life, that Jesus is enough. Be reminded this week. Listen, I don't know about you, but sometimes the sermons go in one ear and out the other, don't they? This week, when you throw something away or take out the trash, be reminded and and say it again, Lord Jesus, you are enough for me. And symbolically, as these things leave my life, Lord Jesus, I know that you and you alone are enough for me. The point of the sermon is not to go throw something away. Don't take that. Oh man, I don't know if I can do it. The point of the sermon is to be reminded that yes, he is indeed and in fact enough for our status, for our security, and certainly for our salvation. Live in the status that's been conferred on us by our Lord Jesus Christ, that we were once sinners and by faith we have received the grace of God to be made saints and live in the security that comes from knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jesus is enough. Let's pray.